Who in here is glad that they can hear God? Yes, I'm so glad that I can hear God. I have a, a very recent story and a reason why I'm glad that I can hear God. Um, and I don't say that as if it's something that I've accomplished. It's much more something that God has accomplished in me, usually in spite of me, uh, the ability to hear him. And last week I heard him at 5 a.m. in the morning. And my family and I, we were in Mexico at a nice house on the beach, ministry style. And, um, and the Lord woke me up at 5 a.m. And I had this overwhelming urge to get up and check the clothing that my kids had thrown on the floor for scorpions. And so I go to Evelyn's t-shirt. I, I go into the, 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 the room and I find my six-year-old daughter's favorite t-shirt. It's black and white striped t-shirt. I pick it up and shake it out. And sure enough, a big scorpion falls out of her favorite t-shirt. And I've seen small ones. This is a big one. And it was, it was ferocious, y'all. Its tail was going. It was real angry. It was like aiming all over the place. And I had like, you know, the adrenaline that like shoots up your spine. I checked under everything after that. I mean, every room, <laughs> every piece of clothing. Because, you know, there's a chance Evelyn could have woke up the next day. My little six-year-old, you've got some of you guys know her. She's so petite. It's her favorite shirt. She could have just thrown it back on. I believe that God actually woke me up to save her life or possibly just save her from a lot of pain. Isn't that cool? That's just a, <laughs> yeah, I was really grateful for the Lord that morning. I grew up in uh, not just a Christian home, but in a home that loved and welcomed Holy Ghost. I'm really, really grateful for my parents. They loved the Lord before I was born, and they, um, they chose to uh, help plant the first vineyard church in Michigan back in 1980. And we attended that same vineyard church my, my whole life, and attended is really an understatement. My dad sang back up while running the soundboard. And <laughs> yeah, figure that one out. They probably should have budgeted for a sound guy. But anyway, he did both. And it's not like the soundboard was on stage either. He was going back and forth. It wasn't distracting at all. Um, and my mom ran the overhead projector. Remember the transparencies? Come on, people. Where are my Christians at? We had transparencies back in the day, and she was good at it. Like when the verses came, she was on it. And then she was back to the chorus. And th in those days, there was really only like a verse and a chorus. Was shoo, 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 shoo. But she was on top of that, and she also cleaned the church. I, I was at, basically at the church like three days a week growing up. And we had home groups in our house regularly. I remember as a, as a child going to bed and I could hear my parents and their friends singing praises through the wall. And I remember, whew, I remember what it felt from an early age, what it was like when the, the corporate anointing and presence of God showed up. And I, and I just loved his presence. I didn't, I didn't know necessarily what it was. I didn't know anything different. That's just how I was brought up, but I knew that when we got together and worshiped and prayed, something really special would, would happen. I began reading the Bible from cover to cover at age 12, but I kept it a secret from my parents because I was embarrassed and didn't want them to think that I loved Jesus as much as I did for some weird reason. 
And it was a miracle because I disliked reading. The only book, this is like my claim to fame in high school, the only book that I read <laughs> by the time I graduated high school was the Bible. <laughs> Y'all ever heard of Cliff Notes? Yep. I still had a 3.7. <laughs> Figure that one out. Um, yeah, so I, I loved the Bible. There's just something like mysterious about it. You, you, just the, the leather-bound Bible, I would open it up and feel as if, you know, some... My, Michael Miller, our, our head pastor, calls it, like, when he first discovered the Bible, he thought it was a book of ancient spells and incantations. <laughs> and it was kind, kind of like that. Just as a kid, I knew that something otherworldly dwelled in, in the pages of that, of that Bible. I ended up going to uh, ministry school. I got an associate's degree in Christian ministry, which makes me very qualified to speak to you today. Just kidding. The only reason I'm qualified to speak to you today is because I landed Ashley Shuck. Um, because when a man finds a wife, he finds a good thing and obtains favor from God. And she is the greatest favor ticket of all. Um, but seriously, though, I think when people meet me, they're like, yeah, Jeremy, he's, he's cool. He's a great, good guy. And then they meet Ashley, and they're like, yeah, there's really something special about Jeremy. Like... <laughs> what a salesman. <laughs> um, well, that, that's probably enough about me. Um, let's find out about us. I, I have a question for us tonight, and it's kind of a litmus test question that uh, I've been asking myself over the years. And um, it's this, would you rather have an exhaustive knowledge of the Bible or have the most vibrant friendship with Holy Ghost? You don't have to answer out loud. Just think about it. I mean, you'd know that Bible forwards and backwards. Or you're really, really close to Holy Spirit. Because I promise you that we can have either. There are men and women with nearly exhaustive hermeneutical and historical knowledge of the Bible. And they can teach it really well who have zero interaction or intimacy with the Holy Spirit. They have tons of knowledge, but very little wisdom from heaven. And there's a big difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit, and wisdom is knowing not to put it in your fruit salad. There's a huge <laughs> difference. Like, you really want wisdom from on high, and not just knowledge. And conversely, you know, some of our greatest heroes who seem to live in this tangible, constant communion with the Holy Spirit, could barely read it all, let alone interpret it. They were just uneducated fishermen of whom the world was not worthy. Today, we live in what is most likely the most blessed era where we have the privilege where we can have both. So let's go after both. One of my best friends recently asked a very influential pastor of a large church, can a man have a relationship with God if he were stranded somewhere without a Bible? To which the influential pastor answered, without delay, no. At least not a very deep one. And this, this is, he's, he's not a villain. This is a very common 
viewpoint sentiment that's all across the church, but this viewpoint has uh, a few problems. Uh, number one, that means that we can't trust the first century church leaders since they didn't have the Bible to lead them into true friendship with God or proper theology. They didn't have the Bible yet. You know, uh, John 14, 26, when Jesus says the Holy Spirit, he's going to come, he's going to lead you into all truth and remind you of everything that I've said to you. He wasn't kidding. That verse didn't say when the Bible comes, it's going to lead you into all truth. It says when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to teach you all things and remind you of everything that I've said to you. See, the New Testament was written to people who already had a relationship with the Holy Spirit who would lead them into these truths. And the first generation didn't have Paul's letters because they weren't written and certainly not compiled. Same with Peter's and John's. Could you imagine being those guys? Like all you had is like the Torah and the prophets and you're like, well, Jesus said that he came to fulfill them both. So yeah, um, that doesn't really fit my theological pipe, but we needed we needed a guide at this point. And speaking of the Gentiles, they, I mean, they couldn't even speak or read Hebrew. So how are they going to interpret the Torah? And at, in that day and age, what was happening is that everybody was being joined into Christ, which means the Gentiles were leaving a polytheistic worship of demigods and entering into the revelatory truth of the kingdom where only one God, Yahweh, is worthy to be worshipped. That is a drastic switch for all the Gentiles. And a huge ch change was happening with the Jews also. They were leaving Abraham for Jesus. They were leaving the old covenant for a faith in Jesus that results in righteousness. Can you imagine the chaos and the, the competing viewpoints. And I mean, just, it's just a big gumbo pot of people from all over the world getting mixed into one bride, getting baptized in. They needed a leader, and his name is Holy Spirit, the guide. The Spirit of Christ, our helper, came forever to lead us in this world-changing paradigm shift. And the very first batch of these men made new turned the world upside down. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying you don't need the Bible or that the Bible is deficient in any way. It's my favorite book. I've had so many encounters with God while reading the word. What I am saying is that a book that has a beginning and end cannot contain a God that has neither. That book was meant to lead us into encounters with him. It's meant to introduce us to the author and there's no more anointed book to do it than that. It's perfect. Can you put up Acts 1-4? I want to talk about the moments leading up to the greatest moment in human history. Gathering, gathering them together, this is Jesus. <laughs> he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said, it's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. 
but you guys are going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you're going to be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. After he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. As they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? Jesus, who's been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you've watched him go into heaven. Jesus. What a cool guy. I mean, what an exit. <laughs> I mean, he's, these are his final parting words. He's got this sweet little speech prepared. He's like, you guys are about to get the coolest thing ever, the promise of the Father. Peace out, peace in. Boop, 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 boop. And he's just like... <laughs> lifts through the sky it's so cool and he says it is the promise of the father it's not a promise or another promise of the father it's not a good thing or some good thing it is the one thing this is the one thing that david wrote about in his famous psalm 27 this one thing i've asked from the lord this one thing do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple? And ever since the garden, we have had this insatiable longing trying to figure out how to get close to God again. It's been the greatest longing of our heart to get close to God. And what we weren't counting on, and the best news of all, is that the greatest longing of God's heart was to get as close to us as possible. Can you put up there Acts 2, which Joe prophetically read earlier? <laughs> this is actually our namesake. This is the upper room passage. This is the greatest moment in human history. What Jesus was talking about in Acts 1, on the day that Pentecost was being fulfilled, all the disciples were gathered in one place, and suddenly they heard the sound of a violent blast of wind rushing into the house from out of the heavenly realm. The roar of the wind was so overpowering, it was all anyone could bear. Then all at once a pillar of fire appeared before their eyes. It separated into tongues of fire that engulfed each one of them. They were all filled and equipped with the Holy Spirit and were inspired to speak in tongues, empowered by the Spirit to speak in languages they had never learned. Here we go. The moment that Jesus was waiting for, when he would be as close to man as he wanted to be since the fall. This is where it, Jesus was saying, John baptized with water, but you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. It's being fulfilled in this moment. And Jesus is saying, John is awesome, but I'm taking over the family business and I'm going to be the new chief dunker. Everybody line up. Could you imagine what's, what's happening in the spirit when Jesus is baptizing his church in God. I mean, imagine walking up to a body of water and you're standing on the edge and Jesus comes up next to you and he says, do you think you're ready? And, and you're like, for what, Jesus? And he said, I, I got to warn you, 
all of God is, is in that water. He, he chose to manifest himself as that lake that's in front of you. And you're like, all of God is in that water. And he's like, yeah, are you ready? And he walks you by the hand down into that water. And you can feel the presence of God on your feet and knees. And you've reached that moment where he's standing next to you with his hand on the back of your head and, you, and, you, and your torso. And he dunks you into all of God. I remember the first time I got overwhelmed by the Holy Ghost. I was 14 years old, and I was praying with, uh, with two other 14-year-olds, a 13-year-old, a 15-year-old, and our leader, a 16-year-old. He was a troublemaker named Eddie. All of us were young men, and it was our first, it was the first of our revival intercession meetings. No adults were there. No adults asked us to do it. We were inspired by the Holy Spirit. We had a voracious hunger to encounter God. And so we decided as you know, little teenagers to get into uh, Eddie's basement and pray until something happened. So we prayed a few things that came to mind. And then my friend began confessing sins. And the presence of God fell on us so strongly that we all started screaming and shouting and jumping and kneeling and weeping and laughing, and it felt like some invisible force was playing my chest like an accordion. It was the first time I felt ecstatic, overwhelming joy. It was the first time I felt the power of travail. I wept tears for my city that were well beyond my years and emotional maturity. I knew that revival was inevitable. I had my first open vision of angels. We knew that God was in us. And so we piled into Eddie's mom's minivan and we drove to the closest grocery store to lead people to Jesus aisle by aisle. <laughs> I went up to this woman in like the canned food aisle and um, I walked right up to her and just engaged in a conversation and asked her if she knew Jesus. And she, uh, basically explained that she was an atheist. And I said, you can stay an atheist if you can look in my eyes and tell me that you don't see God in there. <laughs> and she looked in my eyes, got this very bewildered look on her face and turned and ran from me. Well, she actually did say, there's something going on with your eyes. And she, she turned and ran from me. <clears throat> we ended up keeping our sacred gathering for four years, all the way through high school until all of us had graduated. And every week it was different. Some seemed unremarkable, and some meetings were more intense than the first. And we as you know, boys, not knowing any different, just got together, confessed our sins, worshipped, and prayed. We were worshiping to old vineyard CDs. No one could even play the guitar yet. <laughs> See, Jesus didn't just add himself to our life. He's not a tag along. He didn't just come close. He recreated us into something new that could not have existed before his life, death, and resurrection. 
2 Corinthians 5.17 says it like this, everyone who is in Christ is a new creation. Not just homo sapien, you're homo nuevus, I think is what it's called. <laughs> new human. Behold, the old has gone and the new has come and all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. See, you are something new. When faith entered our hearts, a spiritual death and resurrection occurred. We were resurrected with the mind of Christ, with a new ability to commune with God in an unbroken fashion. We had wisdom and the revelation with us so that we could begin to fathom mysteries that we could not have fathomed before. Like, what color does a Smurf turn when you choke it? He's already blue, you know? It's these deep mysteries we're now able. <laughs> that one did not land. <laughs> See, now you're starting to get it. I see some giggles from you nerds. Um, we were able to grasp mysteries that we could not have been able to understand before. A whole new rewiring, reworking has happened. Jesus said it like this in John 16, 12. He's speaking to his disciples when they're still just homo sapiens. This is before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In 1612, he says, there's much more I'd like to say to you, but it's more than you can grasp right now. But when the truth-giving spirit comes, he will unveil the reality of every truth from within you. Have you guys read that before? Jesus is saying, I've got endless things that I want to tell you, but there's no way that you'd even be able to begin to grasp them. But as soon as you get Holy Ghost, game on. See, no one saw this coming. This was a mysterious plan that was hatched within the heart of the Trinity. That was kept hidden from angels and prophets for generations. They longed to look into it, but couldn't. They could only get small little glimpses. And even when you go back through the Old Testament, you have to really, from hindsight, piece together an understanding of a suffering Messiah who would die, be resurrected, and then God would dwell in man. No one understood that until after it was kept hidden secret. It had to be. Because in Corinthians it says, if, if the rulers of this age knew what they were doing, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. It was kept hidden from them because Jesus wanted to let the cat out of the bag, the line of Judah, and have him get into these bags. <laughs> I mean, the, the idea that God, the way that he would get close to us again, he would be so humble not to just renew like a garden where he walks next to us, but that he would literally make his home in us. He's so remarkable. See, Jesus didn't just seat us in heavenly places. He sat us as heavenly places. 
And when we realize that we're not just dwelling in glory, but we are those in whom glory dwells, revival is imminent. I'm tired of being jealous of the disciples, aren't you? You read those stories and you're like, what would it have been like to walk on the water like Peter or just see Peter walk on the water? What must it have been like to hear the words of Jesus spoken to a crowd and see all the lights turn on? What must it have been like to see the, the, the disciples multiplying the bread, Jesus opening blind eyes, Lazarus coming out of the grave, I just, or going up on the Mount of Transfiguration like Peter, James, and John and, and seeing this below average Jewish dude named Jesus turn into the Lord of glory, get transfigured right in front of them. Don't be offended that I called him below average looking. It's in Isaiah 53. He's an ugly dude. <laughs> Said he had no comeliness that we should desire to look upon him. I mean, how humble is that? In heaven, he probably looks like a mixture of like Brad Pitt and, <laughs> and The Rock. And... And he comes down to earth as a short, ugly Jewish man. <laughs> I don't know. It's just food for thought. <laughs> I'm tired of being jealous of the disciples. Jesus thinks it's way cooler to have the Holy Ghost than to have him incarnate. He said it in John 16, 7. I tell you the truth, it's better that I go. Because if I don't, the Holy Spirit won't come. But if I go, I'll send him to you. He wanted to get real close. Do you remember when the crowd was so thick that Jesus had to launch out into a boat off the shore? Because there's so many people that would not have been able to hear him. So he goes out on the boat. And I heard from someone that water will amplify voice. And so he's, he's pushed off from the shore a little ways because he wants everyone to get a glimpse of his face and to hear a syllable of his voice. And people who have traveled long distances, walked days, are there to hear the words of eternal life. He's so thoughtful and caring that he's doing everything possible to let everyone get a glimpse of him. That's why he would go up on the side of a hill so everyone could get a, a glimpse of his face. Do you remember when there was such a crowd that young men had to dig a hole through the roof so they could lay, lower down their sick buddy down to Jesus? Jesus said, we got we, we to do something better here. He wanted everyone to have a front row seat to him. You don't have to push through a crowd. That's what it says in Luke 17, 20. The kingdom of God isn't detected with visible signs and no one will say, look, here it is or there it is because the kingdom of God is within you. Do you guys know that God's not in heaven? I, I'm not trying to spoil your view of the future. Um, God's not in heaven. Heaven is in God. Second Chronicles 2 says that Who's able to build a temple for him since even heaven and the highest heavens can't contain him? First Kings 8 says the same thing. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heavens can't contain you. 
Do you know that there's only one place specifically designed, there's only one temple that can contain all of God and it's your heart? See, we've been told in recent years that it's a good idea to try to escape the body and go into the spirit. But Jesus, who is perfect in his spirituality, escaped the spirit and got into a body. And he kept it. And I know that he was humbling himself. He is stooping down, taking on the form of a servant. But you can take this or leave it. The Lord told me one time he couldn't wait. He said, you don't understand. There's no greater place in the universe to experience the power of God than in a human frame. There's no greater place to hear the voice of the Father than through the ears of a human. There's no greater place to feel the love of God than within the heart, the soul of man. The, The voice that twists the cedars and explodes the oaks of Lebanon, the voice that's like thunder, even though it shatters cedars, it reverberates in us and finds a home in us. There's no greater place. And I know it's true because he, we just read in Acts 1.11 that he ascended into heaven in that same body that Thomas touched. He ascended into, into heaven in the same body where he ate fish with the disciples. And the angel said, he's gonna come back in the same way. It's a weird thought, right? Somewhere in the heavenly realm, it's a physical body. He so perfectly designed our bodies to nearly explode when he speaks, and yet they don't. There's no greater rush. Right, guys? I know some of y'all have felt the overwhelming presence of God or heard his voice, and now you're addicts. You're obsessed. There's nothing better than to experience God. So Jesus kept that body, and it's not just that it's a body. It's not like he put on a body like a suit, like the body is Jesus. Like If I had a toenail clipping of Jesus, I bet I could sell it for like a billion dollars. You got, don't let, I mean, you guys would be running to this stage if I literally had a toenail clipping from Jesus's foot. <laughs> you know you would. People tried to touch the hem of his garment. That's not even part of his body. I had a toenail clipping right here. His shadow healed people, and I have a toenail clipping from the body of Jesus. See, God created this provisional temporary system where his people could commune with him. And it was the rituals of the the tabernacle and the temple. And, you know, to go into the holy of holies, a priest had to get, you know, detoxified. He had to be decontaminated from the, the harmful side effects of a fallen world so that when he came into the presence of the almighty God, he didn't blow up. 
Because God is a, a billion volts of life, love, and power that if a human with lessened life force comes into his presence, who knows? You know, God in his kindness is telling them, you, you, you have to get cleaned up and make sure you don't touch anything dead and no one who's weak can come in here. It's for your own good. It was a provisional, temporary system, but he couldn't wait to get out of that box. It's like this, like, if you, let's say this chair here is the priest. It's going into the, the Holy of Holies. He's getting washed up. He's separating himself from the community for a while so he doesn't touch anything gross. No dead bodies come near him. He's gone through all the ritualistic cleansing, and, and he can finally go from the outer court to the inner and then into the, up here into the Holy of Holies. How many of you guys want to be that chair in the Holy of Holies? God one-upped it. He was tired of that system. Instead of over and over again, having people think that they have to clean themselves up to get to him, he came to us and by one sacrifice made us all pure and turned us into the temple that he would forever dwell in. He made you into the stage. If you're wondering what your identity is, it's the holy of holies where the Lord dwells.